Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics podcast. This special episode is being released on Christmas morning to correspond with one of the most important events in history. Well, American history. That is Washington's crossing the Delaware. The other event we celebrate on Christmas, we will defer to others more qualified than us. If you've missed our prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up to where we are now, but this special episode clearly stands on its own. I'm joined by co-narrators Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. Unless you're someone like Mike Troy, the American Revolution podcast, chances are extraordinarily high that the last time you learned anything about George Washington's crossing the Delaware was in high school. Likely in a passing reference, or maybe even way back in elementary school. If you're fortunate, you might remember that Washington's crossing of the Delaware is often recognized as a critical turning point in the American Revolution. Before the crossing, the American Revolution was at its darkest hour, all but doomed. It is not an exaggeration to suggest that it saved the American Revolution. David Hacker Fisher has written a brilliant book, Washington's Crossing, which won the Pulitzer Prize in history. That book has been an indispensable resource for this episode. The editor's note that opens Fisher's book was written by James McPherson, and it explains, No single day in history was more decisive for the creation of the United States than Christmas, 1776. On that night, a ragged army of 2,400 colonials crossed the ice-choked Delaware River from Pennsylvania to New Jersey in the teeth of a nor'easter that lashed their boats and bodies with sleet and snow. After marching all night, they attacked and defeated a garrison of 1,500 Hessian soldiers at Trenton. A week later, the Americans withstood a fierce British counterattack at Trenton and then stole away overnight to march 15 miles by back roads to Princeton, where they defeated British reinforcements rushing to Trenton. These victories saved the American Revolution from collapse. Without them, there would have been no United States, at least as we know it. Of all the pivotal events in American history, none was more important than what happened on those nine days, from December 25th, 1776, through January 3rd, 1776. Now forget everything you know about the present day. There is no social media, no smartphones, no internet, no satellites, no computers, no TV, no radio, no planes, no cars, no motorboats. No landlines, no railways, no telegraphs, no steam engines, no running water. And forget everything you know about America. Afghanistan, ISIS, the War on Terror, the Cold War, World War II, World War I, the Spanish-American War, the Civil War, all unimaginable. There's no War of 1812, no Constitution, but there was a Declaration of Independence, and the American Revolution is a death struggle. And it is not going well. It is December 1776. For five months, the American forces have lost every single battle with the British Empire. The Continental Army is close to dissolving. Only a tenth of the Army's early strength remains on the field. And most of those will go home at the end of the year when their enlistments expire. Trying to recruit new troops is next to impossible. The heart of the rebels is one man, George Washington. He had the well-earned reputation as being the best horseman on the continent. He was a striking figure, just towering over other men. His charisma was already legendary. Many spoke of him with awe. When he interacted with civilians, they often bowed. His troops called him, Your Excellency. Still, 
The desperate straits he and his army were facing were undeniable. Americans had been in a much stronger position just months before. In June of 1776, although they lost the Battle of Bunker Hill, they had inflicted serious casualties on British forces. But on August 27, 1776, after a fierce battle, the American forces were compelled to retreat from Long Island, New York. British regular troops, joined by Hessen mercenaries and Scottish troops, engaged in a vicious attack. It was an outright disaster. Although there were some pockets of resolute American resistance, for the most part, the American army fell apart and retreated. Washington was livid and literally caned and whipped the ranks. A brigadier general downed to privates, but to no avail. If not for some last-minute maneuvers and heroics, the entire army might have been lost. Approximately 300 Americans were killed and nearly 1,100 taken prisoner. Despite the disaster, there was still some glimmer of hope. David Hacker Fisher explains. The American army had been routed. Its commanders had made many grievous errors, and even its best infantry could not win a pitched battle against a seasoned regular army. In an ordeal of combat on Long Island, Great Britain's forces of order made short work of America's army of liberty. But some British and Hessian officers were quick to see that something else had happened. The Americans had been driven from the field, but most of them survived to fight another day. Those who talked with American prisoners also reported that even though they had suffered a heavy defeat, they did not feel defeated. In the eyes of the British regulars, the rebels had lost all honor, but many retained their pride and determination, even as prisoners, to the irritation of their captors. They believed in their cause and were confident that they would win in the end. It was maddening to professional soldiers. These American peasants were so ignorant of war that they didn't know when they were beaten. It was clear, even to the winners, that the Battle of Long Island was only the beginning. The Americans still held a position in Brooklyn Heights, and the British moved in to smash the rebels. However, divine intervention saved the army. A powerful wind and rainstorm swept in, holding up both armies. With the storm and fog covering their movements, Washington was able to lead the American troops out of a very precarious position. After a series of American and British maneuvers, including some ingenious positioning of the Royal Navy, the Battle of Harlem Heights erupted on September 16th, the penultimate day of Patriot Week. Yet again, the American forces were routed. They again performed remarkably poorly, panicking in a disorganized retreat. Again, Washington was livid, striking several officers who were in a full-fledged running retreat. Yet again, it could have been much, much worse. The army, for whatever it was worth, suffered few casualties and few were captured. They avoided calamity once again. By September 30th, Washington's army had been reduced to less than 15,000 men fit for duty, half of its force earlier in the year. The British Army was easily within striking distance, and Washington feared that the American Revolution would be crushed in just a few days. Thankfully, the British made their own missteps about the location of landing troops to begin an attack, and American riflemen were able to repel the invasion force. When the British took a pause to reconsider how to finish off the rebels, Washington took the opportunity to flee to a stronger position in White Plains, New York. He had abandoned New York City, but saved the army. Another defeat of American troops soon followed on November 16th, when the nearby Fort Washington fell. 
nearly 3,000 men were captured, with about 60 dead. Fisher explained the effect. George Washington was shattered by the event. He was witness to the final scenes looking on helplessly from the Jersey Palisades across the Hudson River. Through his telescope, he could see some of his troops fighting bravely only to be driven back and defeated. The worst was to watch them surrender and see some of them put to the sword. This time, there was no expression of anger by the American commander-in-chief. His feelings ran deeper than that. He blamed no one else for what happened, took all the responsibility on his own shoulders, and judged himself more severely than anyone else could judge him. As the full weight of the disaster fell upon him, he turned away from his lieutenants and began to weep with the tenderness of a child. This was the most desperate time of Washington's life. He could feel to his bones that the American Revolution was slipping away. But he was a man of fortitude and courage, and he would go on and fight the good fight. The British next struck into New Jersey and Rhode Island. In New Jersey, yet another route of American troops. However, they were not part of Washington's forces. Meanwhile, Washington gathered his army and marched and marched and marched through New Jersey. The British hounded them the whole time. By December 1st, the American forces had been reduced to about 3,000 men. The army was melting away. There were many skirmishes, close encounters, near misses, and maneuvers, but the American troops made it out of New Jersey without a major engagement. The American forces were still alive, albeit on life support. Rhode Island, however, did fall. The British had a grand strategy. Cut off New England, the hotbed of the American Revolution, from her sister states. They would begin by taking New York and New Jersey off the board. The South would then abandon the cause or at worst be isolated from New England. Then the British would smash New England. For a time, it looked like this strategy was going to succeed. During the retreat, Thomas Paine, the world-famous author of Common Sense, determined it was time for a new pamphlet. Payne had been accompanying Washington's troops this whole time. He wrote at night by firelight. Payne was hopeful that the work would inspire the soldiers and American people. One positive development was Congress's decision to unleash Washington. Congress backed off trying to micromanage the war effort, and on December 12, 1776, they gave George Washington full power to order and direct all things relative to the War Department and the operations of war. Then disaster struck. The second highest ranking general in the American Army, General Charles Lee, was taken prisoner on the morning of December 13th. Lee had been trained and served with the British Army and was very experienced. Many thought he should have been America's supreme commander, and most thought he was the most experienced and talented general in the army. The British believed Lee to be so important that some thought the war was basically won with his capture. Without General Lee, the backwards Americans would be no match for the professional imperial troops. Inadvertently, this gave Washington the breathing space he needed to command the army. Lee had self-righteously believed he should be in charge and had been conniving to take command. Jockeying for political position by some of Washington's lesser generals was a cottage industry. 
Lee would often ignore Washington's recommendations or not act with the dispatch and speed that Washington needed. With Lee out of the way, Washington could fully consolidate his command and garner the troops he needed without obstruction. On December 14th, the day after General Lee had been taken captive, British Commander General Howe and his officers were stationed in Trenton, on the New Jersey side of the Delaware River, while Washington spied on the British directly across the river in Pennsylvania. That day, both commanders moved their headquarters, Howe moved to Princeton and New York, and Washington moved 10 miles up the river in Pennsylvania. Washington ordered that his troops carefully guard the river and gather as much intelligence as possible on the enemy's positions. Meanwhile, Thomas Paine finished his work. The American crisis would be a masterpiece. Its purpose was to renew the spirit of American troops and people, to inspire them to continue down the path of the American Revolution, regardless of its cost and how bleak it might appear at the time. The American crisis was not a single pamphlet like Common Sense, but previewing the Federalist Papers, more than a decade later, it would be a series of pamphlets. After many twists and turns, the first installment was published in Philadelphia on December 19, 1776, in a newspaper, the Pennsylvania Journal. Four days later, it was published as a standalone pamphlet. A true believer, Payne took no profit, and the price he insisted would be two pennies. Basically, it paid for the printer's expenses. Washington troops soon began reading the majestic writing, and it was having its desired effect. Deserters returned to the lines. Troops' morale positively skyrocketed. Civilian contributions were restarted. Local political leaders were jolted into action. Bolstered by Payne's pamphlet, the overall resolve of the American people and its political leadership was renewing. Then, just two weeks after Lee was captured, Congress passed a second resolution giving Washington enormous authority. This Congress, having maturely considered the present crisis and having perfect reliance on the wisdom, vigor, and uprightness of General Washington, do hereby resolve that General Washington shall be and he is hereby vested with full, ample, and complete powers to raise and collect together in the most speedy and effectual manner from any or all of these United States. 16 battalions of infantry, in addition to those already voted by Congress to appoint officers for said battalions to raise, officer, and equip 3,000 light horse, three regiments of artillery, and a corps of engineer, and to establish their pay to apply to any of the states for such aid as the militia as he shall judge necessary to form such magazines of provisions and in such places as he shall think proper to displace and appoint all officers under the rank of brigadier general and to fill up all vacancies in every other department in the American armies, to take wherever he may be whatever he may want for the use of the army if the inhabitants will not sell it, allowing reasonable price for the same, to arrest and confine persons who refuse to take the continental currency, or are otherwise disaffected to the American cause and return to the states of which they are citizens their names and the nature of their offenses." together with the witnesses to prove them that the foregoing powers be vested in General Washington for enduring the term of six months from the date hereof, unless sooner determined by Congress. There was no doubt now Washington had full command of the troops and resistance. It all fell to him. Washington had the power he needed to win. Well, to at least not lose the war. What he did with the power would be remarkable. 
Washington reorganized the dwindling army, concentrating command down from the regiments to the brigade level. This made the army more agile and maneuverable. The number of officers stayed the same, increasing the number of officers in ratio to normal soldiers, making the units more cohesive and resilient. Concurrently, talent and hard work became the prime considerations of promoting officers. Congress had appointed many higher officers based on political considerations, but as Washington promoted officers, he focused on their effectiveness. The army was democratizing and becoming a meritocracy, again making it more effective. Washington also improved logistics for procuring supplies. Under his direction, troops were sufficiently supplied with the implements of war, weapons, gunpowder, rounds, artillery, etc., On the other hand, pressed into service through so many battles, skirmishes, retreats, and marches, soldiers' uniforms were becoming tatters and rags, shoes were worn out, socks dissolved, blankets trashed. That would remain a major problem in the foreseeable future. Militia and other forces had been harassing British forces in New Jersey, but the major armies were not engaging each other. The British were content to start settling in for the winter. Their troops were dispersed throughout New Jersey in winter quarters. While the British started to snuggle in their blankets, Washington was looking to strike back, to exact revenge for his prior losses and to show to the American people and the world that he could defeat the British. He was bolstered by the fact that American militia from New England and other forces had reinforced the American army. Historians Henry Steele Commager and Richard B. Morris explained the state of affairs. Since the troops sent from New York to reinforce him had in most cases not re-enlisted and their service would expire the first of the year, Washington in desperation realized that a blow must be struck at once. By mid-December, the British had gone into winter quarters. Howe's forces had spread themselves very thin. General Grant, in command of the British forces in New Jersey, saw little danger from the American army, which had retreated across the Delaware to Pennsylvania. Writing on December 21st to Lieutenant Colonel Rawl in command of the Hessian garrison at Trenton, he stated that the American army, almost naked, dying of cold, without blankets, and very ill-supplied with provisions. Colonel Joseph Reed was adjunct of the Continental Army and worked closely with Washington at this time. Reed was carefully monitoring the British Army's movements. He wrote Washington a dispatch, trying to spur him into action. Washington received the letter on December 22nd. We are all of the opinion, my dear General, that something must be attempted to revive our expiring credit, give our cause some degree of reputation, and prevent total depreciation of the continental money which is continuing on very fast, that even a failure cannot be more fatal than to remain in our present circumstance, or we must give up the cause. In a little time, the continental army will be dissolved. The militia must be taken before their spirits and patience are exhausted, and the scattered divided state of the enemy affords us a fair opportunity to try what our men will do when called to be on an offensive attack. Our affairs are hasting fast to ruin if we do not retrieve them by some happy event 
delay is now equal to a total defeat. Be not deceived, General, with small flattering appearances. We must not suffer ourselves to be lulled into security and inaction. What exactly did Reed have in mind? A major offensive attack, the first of the war, targeting some of the isolated British forces sprinkled throughout New Jersey. Reed was apparently readying Washington's mind. Washington immediately convened a council of war. They were determined that Reed's advice was sound. If it was feasible, they must launch an attack. Soon, Washington agreed that crossing the Delaware could be accomplished. He sent secret orders to his officers. They would be attacking the enemy's forces at Trenton, New Jersey. The target would be a large contingent of Hessian troops. Although due care was taken to keep the plan secret, British spies and deserters learned of the plans and tipped off the British and Hessian forces. They were unconcerned. They had already established patrols, guards, and search parties. They believed an attack would be easily discovered and repelled. In addition, they were exhausted. They had been harassed by American militia, were under enormous pressure, and sleep-deprived. The miserable weather was wearing them down, and many were wounded from skirmishes with the locals. The Hessens were foreign troops brought in by the British to suppress the rebellion. This formed the basis of the 25th Grievance in the Declaration of Independence, that the British hired German mercenaries to oppress their fellow subjects was seen as a barbaric affront. Approximately 12,000 of the Empire's soldiers were hired mercenaries. Hessens, Hanoverians, and Metterbergers were hired from Germany. In this episode, they are collectively referred to as the Hessens. They had a well-earned reputation for cruelty and barbarism. The English had decided to sick these bloodthirsty barbarians on the Americans. These despised troops were targeted by Washington's attack. At four o'clock on Christmas Day, Washington's troops began to muster near the Delaware River. It was literally freezing, and the troops had no idea what was happening. John Greenwood, a fifer, was a veteran of the disastrous campaign against Montreal. He had joined Washington's troops just two days before. He reported, I knew not the disposition of the army we were then in, nor anything about the country. I never heard soldiers say anything nor ever saw them trouble themselves as to where they were or where they were led. It was enough to know that wherever the officers commanded they must go, be it through fire and water, none but the first officers knew where we were going or what we were going about, for it was a secret expedition. When we mustered on Christmas Day, I then had a gun, as indeed every officer had. Every man had 60 rounds of cartridges served out to him. They began to march in a tight, highly organized formation. Silence was essential. Washington ordered to his officers that, A profound silence is to be enjoyed, and no man to quit his ranks on pain of death. Washington planned a four-prong attack. Four separate troop formations would simultaneously cross the Delaware River on Christmas night and assault Trenton just before dawn on December 26th. The first prong was the main attack group. Washington would lead 2,400 Continental troops and attack Trenton from the north and west. The second prong was to cut off the Hessians' escape route. 
General James Ewing would lead 800 Pennsylvania militia to capture a bridge in the south of Trenton that would block Hessian's retreat in that direction. The third prong was a crucial diversionary force. Colonel John Cadwallader would lead 1,800 troops to create a diversion. That is, they were to draw away the Empire's nearby Highlanders and other Hessian troops that would otherwise try to relieve Trenton from siege. Washington instructed Cadwallader, If you can do nothing real, at least create as great a diversion as possible. The fourth column was a support group, but it was all but wishful thinking. Major General Israel Putnam would try to take 300 men to cross at Philadelphia to bring up support. But this was a known long shot that no one depended upon. It would utterly fail. On Christmas Eve, Washington ordered that the men be read Thomas Paine's newly minted American Crisis No. 1. The effect was electrifying. Morale skyrocketed. The first passage is immortal. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of his country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to set a proper price upon its goods, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Britain, with an army to enforce her tyranny, has declared that she has the right not only to tax, but to bind us in all cases whatsoever. And if being bound in that manner is not slavery, then there is not such a thing as slavery upon the earth. Even the expression is impious, for so unlimited a power can belong only to God. With those majestic words still ringing in their ears, the American troops prepared for battle. This was a highly synchronized plan. Timeliness was key. The attack on Trenton was to begin at 5 a.m. on December 26th. To attack Trenton at 5 a.m., they needed to begin marching in New Jersey at midnight. To begin that march, they needed to begin crossing the Delaware River in Pennsylvania just after sunset. To do that, they needed to depart their camps at 4 p.m. All the troops were carrying their muskets, 60 cartridges, rations for three days, and blankets. This did not create conditions for a speedy march. The timing all went awry. The troops left late. Major James Wilkinson caught up to one of the column of troops and spied. The route was easily traced as there was a little snow on the ground, which was tinged here and there with blood from the feet of the men who wore broken shoes. As noted earlier, the Hessians had been warned. Unlike his superiors, Hessian Lieutenant Andreas von Wiederholt was very concerned. On Christmas Day, he was in charge of an outpost in the northwest section of Trenton and was on high alert. I sent out patrol after patrol and warned them to be on their guard. The night passed quietly. Colonel Johann Rahl commanded the garrison. Major von Deckau shared von Wiederholt's concern, 
even suggesting to Colonel Rawl that the baggage should be removed from the garrison to avoid its capture if there was an attack. Rawl was playing cards. He did not want to be disturbed by such rubbish. sticks. Those clodhoppers will not attack us. And should they do so, we will simply fall on them and rout them. With nightfall came a heavy winter storm. It was a terrible howling storm. Obviously, the clodhoppers would not be attacking. Major Dekau issued orders. Cancel the next morning's pre-dawn patrol because of the heavy storm. Even Lieutenant Wiederholt relaxed. Men, you are free to take shelter in the picket house. Back across the river, delays happened with all the American columns, the last arriving two hours late. This jeopardized the whole intention of a sneak attack before sunrise. As the sun was setting, the troops marched to the Delaware River, and it began to drizzle. The Pfeiffer John Greenwood observed the change in the weather. Just after sunset, it began to drizzle or grow wet. By 11, it rained, hailed, snowed, and froze. Oh, it blew a perfect hurricane. All the American troops were slow to arriving at their departure sites and were being swamped by the freezing hurricane. The second prong, General Ewing's 800 Pennsylvania militiamen, who were to cut off the Hessens' retreat, were foiled by a humongous ice jam. Large ice flows were backing up in the current. There was just not enough ice to walk on and not enough open water to traverse the river. They were frozen out of the action. Meanwhile, the third prong, the diversionary force, could not cross at the original determined location. They moved six miles and with great difficulty. Connecticut Captain Thomas Rodney recounted, The river was also very full of float ice, and the wind was blowing very hard, and the night was very dark and cold, and we had great difficulty in crossing. When we reached the Jersey Shore, we were obliged to land on ice, a hundred and fifty yards from the shore. About 600 of the light troops got over on foot, but the boats with the artillery were carried away in the ice and could not be got over. But that was all for naught. As the night wore on, the conditions worsened and the rest of the troops in this prong could not cross. About three hours after the 600 troops had successfully crossed, no more could make the journey. The commanders of the third prong, Generals Cadwallader and Hitchcock, ordered that the attempt be abandoned, and then ordered the 600 light troops who made it across the river to return. Without the rest of the troops and the artillery, they were concerned that if Washington was defeated, this essential corps of 600 troops would be taken prisoner as well. Of course, the weather that prevented their comrades from joining the 600 also made it nearly impossible for the 600 to return for several hours. Adjunct of the Continental Army, Colonel Joseph Reed, explained that The soldiers returned with great reluctance. By this time, the ice began to drive with such force and in such quantities as threatened many boats with absolute destruction. To add to the difficulty, about daybreak there came the most violent storm of rain, hail, and snow intermixed in which the troops marched back to Bristol. 
Washington's troops, on the other hand, were able to handle the extraordinarily difficult conditions. Washington put General Henry Knox in charge of the crossing. With a bellowing voice, he masterfully directed the passage through freezing waters and ice flows. Most of the troops were transported in Durham boats, which were designed to carry cargo and, yes, the men did stand. The small flotilla included many different types and sizes of vessels, and Knox was able to secure the safe passage of 18 artillery pieces as well as horses. The mission was now three hours behind. As the troops disembarked, warmed themselves, and began to organize, Washington sent in advance a series of sentries. To maintain secrecy, no one could leave or enter without the password. Otherwise, they would be detained. Washington personally picked the password and wrote it on small slips of paper for distribution. It was simple and cut to the chase. Victory or death. Soon the troops were organized into vanguards in the main body of infantry. Washington's cousin, Captain William Washington, led one of the vanguards. Artillery were deployed to be used as shock weapons against the Hessians and to support the American forces. They began to quietly march at four o'clock, a mere four hours behind. Locals acted as guides, and many militia joined the mile-long force. Meanwhile, the storm became even more intense, and the Americans were walking straight into the sleet-laced wind. Still, the spirits of the troops were remarkably positive and elated. They had achieved an improbable crossing and were on the offensive. As they moved closer to their objective, the weather let up a bit, and the army was able to pick up speed. They had to stop to engineer a crossing at Jacob's Creek. To cross, they needed to dismount, prepare the artillery and horses, tie ropes on trees and held by men, and then physically hauled the material across the creek. As soon as they passed the ravine of the creek, they marched into an open plain, meaning the storm again hit them with full force. Rain, hail, and snow continued. The line started to stagger. Men were literally freezing. Pfeiffer John Greenwood recollected. I recollect very well that at one time, when we halted on the road, I sat down on the stump of a tree and was so benumbed with cold that I wanted to go to sleep. Had I been passed unnoticed, I should have frozen to death without knowing it. But as good luck attended me, Sergeant Madden came and, rousing me up, made me walk about. We then began to march again, just in the old slow way. Not all had such good luck. Two fell out of the line and froze to death. Nevertheless, Washington rode by the soldiers, encouraging them with every step in a deep and solemn voice. Soldiers, keep by your officers. For God's sakes, keep by your officers. After a steep decline down a hill, they were only halfway to Trenton. It was six o'clock, and the dawn was about to break. Washington divided the forces into two, Washington leading one force while General Nathaniel Greene led the other. Captain William Hull of Connecticut noted what happened before the two prongs of attack separated. General Washington gave orders that every officer's watch should be set by his and the moment of the attack fixed. Remarkably, this is the first time synchronized watches were ever used to time an attack, at least in recorded history. Washington's orders were simple. 
that once the columns reached Trenton, immediately upon forcing the outguards to push directly into the town, that they might charge the enemy before they had time to form. When the men reported that the weather had dampened their powder and destroyed their cartridge boxes, the answer was simpler still. Advance and charge! The vanguard had taken many civilians prisoner to protect the secrecy of the mission. Some civilians actually became volunteers. At 7.30, just after the sunrise, the columns were two to three miles from the town. Washington rode aside the men. Press on, boys! Press on! Then, a most bizarre twist of fate. Washington came upon 50 of his own men, not those who were part of the attack force, but others from another regiment who had ventured across the Delaware on their own accord under the command of Captain George Wallace. They had been sent by Adam Stevens of Virginia's 4th Regiment. It was a raiding party of 50 men who were engaged in revenge for the killing of one of their soldiers on the Delaware River. They had been sent on Christmas Eve and engaged in a small skirmish on Christmas night, just after sunset. Washington was livid. This attack had not been approved by Washington, and he knew nothing about it. Washington's entire plan depended upon surprise, and now the Hessens would surely be on alert because of this unauthorized, bumbling effort. You, sir, you, sir, may have ruined all my plans by having put them on their guard. Washington calmed himself, asked the troops to join his forces, and moved on. Although it was now 7.30 and past sunrise, the storm finally worked to Washington's advantage. Although the sun had risen, the morning was still dark because of the storm. Two miles away, the Americans moved forward. Major John Sullivan secured a bridge to prevent the Hessians from retreating. The Hessian commander, Lieutenant Andreas von Wiederholt, had followed his orders impeccably. He sent out several patrols that night, yet none spied the Americans. Because of the weather, they stayed very close to the town. Before eight o'clock, his day patrol reported all was silent and quiet. The Hessians were completely unaware of the attack force. A complete surprise was about to erupt the morning after Christmas. At about eight o'clock, December 26th, the Americans fired the first shots on the outskirts of town. The first target was von Wiederholt. Luckily for him, he was missed. Hessians countered fired, and the Americans launched three volleys. Three minutes later, American artillery erupted from the other prong of the attack. The synchronicity of the attack was nearly perfect. Soon the Hessians were alerted, and their commander, Colonel Johann Rahl, decided to crush the rebels by assaulting them in the center. They were no match for his seasoned, disciplined troops. They launched a small artillery attack. But the Americans had the high ground. The American artillery responded, including two guns commanded by young Captain Alexander Hamilton. The American cannon fire was unrelenting, concentrating their attack on the Hessians' artillery. Eight Hessians fell almost immediately, and the rest retreated. The Hessians' crack forces started to crack under the American artillery assault. They regrouped under Colonel Rahl and pushed a counterattack up the hill on which the American artillery was perched. 
Washington quickly countered by moving troops to a higher ground to cut off and cut down the Hessians. Rahl, seeing that the attack was destined to fail, turned his sights on his own cannon, which had now been captured by American forces, a strike against his honor. He commanded his men in a counterattack. Oh, who are my grenadiers? Forward! Rahl's men were cut down in a crossfire of musket fire and artillery. Still, the Hessians recaptured their cannon. Captain Washington led the Americans on a charge, but was injured in both hands. Future President James Monroe was also seriously injured and was barely saved by a volunteer physician who joined the forces the night before. The Americans took back the Hessian cannon and turned it on their former owners. The Hessians tried to create a barricade, but the Americans overran it and inflicted heavy losses on the Hessians. Civilians joined in the fight, shooting from their homes, including a woman who killed a Hessian captain. One Hessian regiment lost 70 men, including four officers, and Rao was struck with two fatal wounds and quickly died. Many Hessians broke in full-scale retreat, hiding in various buildings. Some ran to an orchard outside of town. They were surrounded and surrendered. Similar conflicts continued throughout the town, and the same scene repeated over and over. At the end of the day, the Hessians suffered 918 losses. 22 killed outright, 83 suffering serious injuries, for a total of 896 officers and men taken prisoner. One colonial soldier later reflected, My blood chilled to see such horror and distress. Blood mingling together, the dying groans, the garments rolled in blood. The sight was too much to bear. The Americans reported two officers and one or two privates wounded, although at least two had died of exhaustion, illness, and exposure. Not a single American was actually killed in the battle. The losses were extraordinarily low, considering the forces engaged and the heavy losses suffered by the Hessians. It was a total victory on an amazing scale. Washington remarked, This is a glorious day for our country. Later, Washington issued the following resolution, commending and rewarding the men for their valiant efforts. The general, with the utmost sincerity and affection, thanks the officers and soldiers for their gallant and spirited behavior at Trenton yesterday. It is with inexpressible pleasure that he can declare that he did not see a single instance of bad behavior in either officers or privates, and that, if any fault could be found, it proceeded from a too great eagerness to push forward upon the enemy. Much, very much indeed, is to be lamented that when men are brought to play the part of soldiers thus well, that any of them, for the sake of a little temporary ease should think of abandoning the cause of liberty and their country at so important a crisis. As a reward to the officers and the soldiers for their spirited behavior in such inclement weather, the general will, in behalf of the continent, 
have all the field pieces, the arms and accoutrements, horses, and anything else which was taken yesterday, valued, and a proportionate distribution of the amount made among the officers, if they choose to partake, and the men who crossed the river. The commissary is strictly ordered to provide rum for the troops, that it may be served out as occasion will require. However, General Henry Knox may have best summarized what happened on that Christmas night and the day after. Providence seems to have smiled upon every part of this enterprise. Great advantages may be gained from it if we take proper steps. At another post, we have pushed over the army 2,000 men, today another body, and tomorrow the whole army will follow. It must give a sensible pleasure to every friend of the rights of man to think with how much intrepidity our people pushed the enemy and prevented their foreman in the town. Although Washington's and Knox's writings were very powerful, an anonymous poet also captured the moment with a wondrous short ditty in 1776. On Christmas Day in 76, our ragged troops with bayonets fixed for Trenton marched away. The Delaware Sea, the boats below, the light obscured by hail and snow, but no signs of dismay. Our object was the Hessen band that dared invade our fair freedom's land and quarter in that place. Great Washington, he led us on, whose streaming flag in storm or sun had never known disgrace. In silent march we passed the night, each soldier panting for the fight, though quite benumbed with frost. Green on the left at six began, the right was led by Sullivan who never a moment lost. Their picket stormed, the alarm was spread, the rebels risen from the dead were marching into town. Some scampered here, some scampered there, and some for action did prepare, but soon their arms laid down. Twelve hundred servile miscreants, with all their colors, guns, and tents, were trophies of that day. The frolic over the bright canteen in center front and rear was seen, driving fatigue away. Now, brothers of the Patriot bands, let's sing deliverance from the hands of arbitrary sway. And as our life is all but a span, let's touch the tankard while we can, in memory of that day. Hear, hear! Some key takeaways from this episode. By mid-December 1776, the American Revolution was in desperate straits. After a series of defeats, the American army had retreated through New Jersey and was stationed in Pennsylvania with the British Army right across the Delaware River. The army was on the verge of utter collapse. Overconfident, the British went into winter quarters. Congress gave George Washington enormous authority, and Washington used the lawn fighting and his new power to reorganize and strengthen his troops. Washington and his officers designed a daring attack, inspired the troops through the reading of Thomas Paine's American Crisis, crossed the nearly frozen Delaware River after dark on Christmas night, and through divine intervention, was able to mount a surprise attack on the hated Hessen troops in Trenton, winning an improbable victory, which became a critical turning point in the war. George Washington and America. Merry Christmas. Please join us for our next general episode when we return to the Constitution, and in particular Article 1, which establishes the Congress. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriot.org for many fabulous resources, including lesson plans and over 200 videos. I am Oakland County, Michigan Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. 
Our other two terrific narrators are Mike Gerard Skinechny, who is our sound designer and the host of his own unique podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard, and bombastic Brent Bassett, our all-purpose patriot. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at PatriotWeek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.